Welcome everybody to episode two of a six part series that we're running on Spike Camp. This series is called Sheep Camp and we are trying to have a wide variety of content and guests for this segments. And tonight we are very excited. Both Blake and I have been waiting to do this for a very long time with our good buddy, Kevin Willis, who is by far the most dedicated sheep hunter that we know. And over the last couple of months, we've gotten to know a lot more sheep hunters with this project. So uh, having said that, uh, Kevin's been a very big inspiration, uh, mentor, just a fountain of information for Blake and I over the years. And uh, just want to thank you for that. Also want to thank you for helping empty my wallet because the sheep hunting thing is pretty expensive. So I joke with people and say, Kevin Willis might be my most expensive friend that I know, but a great guy nonetheless. So welcome to the show, Kev. Thank you very much for doing this with us tonight. Um, maybe we'll start off if you could give us a little, just a short bio on you and uh, kind of your history and how you became well, I don't I know it's a long story on how you became a sheep hunter, but maybe just give us a little background if you would. Yeah, for sure. And uh, right off the hop, thank you guys for having me on. This is actually, this is actually really a, a thrill for me to be on and support you guys. This is a really worthwhile endeavor, what you're doing, Blake and, and Chuck. And um, Spike Camp has a really bright future. I think you guys have tapped into something really amazing. So congrats again. And Feel really privileged to be on and um and uh, yeah so you know i came to sheep hunting uh a little bit later and i was sort of grew up fishing and uh hunting and um more like uh not mountain hunting but just sort of the regular kind of hunting that you would think and lots of mountaineering and rock climbing and just being outside um and then sort of in my teen years, I did a lot more backpacking and sort of soloing and overnight camping and got introduced to the hunting, um, the mountain hunting game, uh, sort of, I would say right before maybe around 18 years old and never looked back and just really started hitting the mountains. And it took me a long time to kind of hone in on what my true passion was. And that was uh, sheep hunting and um so yeah i really um spent quite a few years I, i'm one of the guys that uh took like seven or eight years to actually harvest a ram and uh i had i did everything i did um boating trips i did flying trips i did hiking trips and i never had anybody to sort of uh help me out or or point me even in the right direction i literally just picked um x's on the map that looked probable and it was a lot of expense i was quite poor at the time and uh as a young starving student and um yeah it just took me a long time to kind of find myself and, and get into the groove and um sort of after high school i went to university and and um spent time there getting a degree in biology and uh, the, the crowd i hung out with there was was into hunting as well so yeah we really spent a lot of time outdoors and um yeah so that's kind of how i i came into to the hunting end of things and um i ended up let me think here 
I can't remember how long ago it was, but I, I ended up going on quite a few sheep hunts, never seeing anything. And I was really discouraged at the time. And, um, but I, you know, every year I would go back and do more and more hunts and with my partner and, uh, and quite a little sort of a side story is I ended up seeing a really nice legal ram one year at the end of a hunt, we would hunt region six, we would, we would, you know, wouldn't hunt region seven, we'd hunt region six for all those years. And we came around the top one year and we were, went to the hot springs in Liard. And as we were coming through the, the rock cut was a really nice big legal ram there. And I was just like, my eyeballs were spinning. I was like hypnotized by this thing. It was such a nice ram to see a legal ram finally after striking out for seven years. And um, I, you know, I was really sort of gung-ho to go get this ram. And my partner at the time was like, I'm going to drop you off. And it was too close to the highway. You couldn't shoot it there. But I had these like sort of, this cloudy fog over me of like, well, I'm going to try and get it further away from the, from the road out of the, the no hunting area. And my partner was like, Kev, do you really want that to be your first ram? After all this hard work, do you want that to be your very first sheep? Are you going to be satisfied with that? And, and that actually struck a chord and, and I obviously pulled the pin and we came home and the next year I went solo and ended up, harvesting a really nice ram so um one thing i learned is um sort of passing on the knowledge is is a thing and it's something that we all should be doing and because i never had that passed on to me in terms of sheep hunting and so now i try to uh do my best to to pass that on and that's kind of where i'm at today is i i just a regular guy i have a regular job i go sheep hunting once or twice a year and have uh yeah had decent success i'd say yeah yeah right on i mean and i I can certainly attest to the uh the sharing component of your you know of your character because you've done a lot of that for us and and you know i always tell blake whenever we hook up with kevin for a beer or go to your house you know just literally listen to everything the man has to say because there's little tidbits of gold and little nuggets all the way through and uh, it's certainly been a big help. And, and that's honestly one of the main reasons we wanted to get you on here tonight was, you know, for that very reason. So this is a chance to, to, to give back and do a little of that sharing again. So um, can you just tell us a little bit about the, the river jet story? Cause I, I know there's a lot of users or pardon me, a lot of members on spike camp that, yeah. um, that you would know and that know you from your days at river jet, because that's kind of a unique situation for you, uh, you changed your life for sheep hunting. I know you didn't, you didn't start river jet because it was going to be a career for you. So maybe you can just touch on that a little bit. Yeah. So river jet was, was a great period for me. I, I came to that the river jet did exist before, but it was a small operation um, run by run by a gentleman. And um, I acquired river jet one year at the sheep banquet. I had a few glasses the whiskey there and cornered the guy and said, I want to buy your company. And he, he was uh, gracious enough to entertain me. And we did a deal the next year. And um, I never looked back after that. I just started river jet, not knowing much about much. I was a jet boater for many years before, 
but really learned a lot on those northern rivers there and um and and just a passion of jet boating and hunting really came together and uh was able to sort of tie the riverboat thing into the sheep for me did i freeze on you guys again chuck yeah just for a second right at the end i think of the river jet conversation so um can you hear me okay now yeah i can hear you fine yeah okay all right yeah, yeah. well we'll keep trucking um so how long <laughs> did you own riverjet for i can't remember how long that was it was it was about 10 years um that i that i ran that operation and met a whole bunch of really cool guys over the years you guys included and really got to see some of the um some really great meat lot really great that i learned a ton of hunters done from you know um and that's the thing i i i did learn so much from being up there being surrounded by like-minded people um i was like a sponge those first few years and um and i still am now i'm still constantly learning but um i owned i, I ran river jet for about 10 years and then it was time for various family reasons, personal reasons to pass it on. And, and now there's uh, another gentleman that's having a lot of fun running those rivers up there. Yeah, right on. I mean, uh, you know, what an experience when you think about it, right? What better way could there be to really get exposed to the, you know, the whole sheep hunting um, scene with, uh, as far as the, the country. And I know you're, you, you spent a lot of time, not just transporting hunters, but you used river jet as uh, a means to learn the area, learn the mountains, um, study sheep and all that. So, I mean, that it's just fascinating, like, like great opportunity, right? Yeah, for sure. It was, um, you know, I spent, I'd go up there quite early in, in July and I'd spend quite a few weeks hiking around and learning those areas, um, you know, being surrounded by she country, learning the trails, um, you know, the mountains that um, just everything up there was, was just so captivating. And uh, as much, you know, I would put in a ton of effort on the front end to try and find new sheep areas for the guys um and 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 it seemed to work out because i was able to run sort of a very sustainable and uh, successful operation up there and um i like to think i i i was in the business of of making sheep hunters because i would try and help as many people uh over the years and actually in the beginning it was mandatory to have a um you'd have i'd actually make the guys buy a membership for the wild sheep society of bc in order to come up on a sheep hunt so <laughs> thank you oh, guys right on. <laughs> no that's really cool yeah i mean and, and and not just that but i know you did a lot of work like on the trail systems and you know a lot of that extra you know trail busting and and just getting to know like telling guys where you know where the good spots were for water and all that i mean just amazing work and there's a lot of guys that uh guys and girls that can thank you for for their success for sure so um let's talk a little bit about um the ultralight game i i i can remember back when um we first came over to your shop and and you were kind of walking us through your your gear setup and yeah. um i have to say i think you were the 
one of the first guys I saw that had like an ultralight backpack and that pack was made, I believe it's a McHale pack, right? You had that custom bit built for you. And that was probably before the days of the stone glaciers and the Kuyus and all that. Tell us a little bit about that story because that's pretty interesting. Yeah, the um, I, I was always trying to find, everybody wants to find the latest, greatest. And um, I wanted a truly custom pack and, and got in touch with Dan McHale um, down in, uh, he's in near Seattle there and uh, went down for a, it's actually quite an in-depth process to buy with him. He sends, he actually sews, uh, a custom pack for you you pick every detail on it and he will actually send you a pack to fit yourself and then take photos and then you send that pack back and he will finish sewing your pack uh, with your sort of exact measurements and how how his his pack system fits on you and you know he does everything he I remember it was like an hour and a half of measurements and he measures every detail from your, you know, the length of your iliac crest to, um, to, you know, your, your exact torso, uh, your hips, everything, all this, all the bone structure, the pack is actually sewed for you. And what I, what I actually liked also was the materials he used back then. I mean, my pack is, was um, Dyneema and uh, Cuban fiber and there weren't many packs using those materials back in when I when I bought that pack and it wasn't it wasn't uh, cheap it, you pay for it but I just wanted a one pack that was tough enough to pack a, a deboned ram or animal off the mountain not worry about things breaking and 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 whatnot and those packs seem to work for me and there's lots nowadays there's a lot of great packs out there I get asked a lot about backpacks and um, you know, the stone glaciers are, are ones and really good ones. And there's a whole bunch of other ones as well. And, and, um, I remember the first year stone glacier was, I went to that, uh, the wild sheep foundation and they had a booth there and, um, I, I picked up their first pack and went, Oh my gosh, like this thing is amazing. It was super light. I thought at the time the material might've been a little light, but, um, for, for wear and tear, but man, they've sure, uh, done, done right. And they've got a great thing going, those guys and other companies too, uh, Kuyu and, and, uh, man, I, I, and I actually ran one of the first Kuyu packs with the, the icon frame. Um, I ran, um, let's see, man, I ran Wilderness Wanderer. I ran a, a Barney's. I ran a, um, Kifaru. I ran, um what else mystery ranch like all all the sort of the big pack names i've i've ran there isn't one that's head and shoulders above another and um i just ended up on a cut a truly custom pack and um yeah i've been really happy with it guys like it's it's been a it hasn't failed me put it that way and i've i've been with guys where their packs uh have have broke and that just happened to me last year my partner his the stays in his backpack actually snapped right in half and we were just um, carrying out some some uh, rams out of the bush, and and sure enough, he broke his. So, yeah, I mean, you never know. You, I just tell people invest in good gear, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know when it comes to backpacks, um, it's kind of like boots, right? You've got to you got to find the one that fits you. You got to find 
you know, the one that um, has the features or lack of features, you know, if you want an ultralight pack, uh, Blake can agree with this. I've, I've tried every single pack out there too. Now, mind you, I'm a gear nerd and kind of a snob when it comes to that stuff. But uh, this year I'm running the, uh, the, the latest Stone Glacier Terminus, the 8700. And so far, so good. I mean, I haven't had it out in the bush yet. I've just been training with it and it fits, it's light. Um, you know, it can carry my whole camp and hopefully a, a ram as well. So, uh, yeah, I totally agree. But I, it's a fascinating story. Do you know if Mikhail is still making those packs? Is he still in business? I, I believe so. Um, but don't quote me on that 100%. Um, his, uh, his website leaves something to be desired, but I don't really think he's he's not really in the, in the market for, for mass marketing is his packs. Sure. He doesn't sell that many packs and um, you know, uh, and you're right, Chuck, like, I mean, they're like ultralight, ultralight's a word that people throw around. There, there are people way lighter than myself and there are packs that are much lighter than my pack. Um, but it, there's sort of that balance of robust toughness that you need to carry your camp and i do a lot of solo backpacking so i'm carrying my camp and a d-bone ram and head and cape and the whole kit and caboodle in one so there was sort of a, a balancing act there and um so if you go to ultralight you can end up um sort of tipping the scale one direction there where it can fail on you so yeah there's a definitely a, a fine line between um ultralight optimal weight and you know, a safety risk too, right? Like that's the last thing you want is, you know, a broken pack. And even on the, like on the shelters and sleep systems and things like that, you can, you can push it. Rain gear is another one, you know, you can, I'm not telling anybody here anything they don't know, but uh, there's a fine line. I think you have to, to figure out what your comfort zone is. So um, just curious, what's your, like, what do you consider, you know, a ready to go uh, pack weight for you? for say, I know you do long trips, so whatever, 12 or 14 days, what do you shoot for? Did you hear me, Kev? Yeah, I'm just having some live stream issues here. Um, just let me know okay. if you can hear me, guys. Yeah, we can hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just uh, reconnecting here. Um, okay, looks like I'm back. So um, just give me a thumbs up, guys, if you can hear me. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah okay, we got perfect. you. Can you hear um, us? Yeah, okay. Um, so I, I do longer trips, a lot of solo stuff. And so my pack weight for 12 days is, is sort of the number I, I have in mind is 12 days with everything. And that's with my rifle on there with seven shells, um all my food all my clothing and all my optics and and everything is uh about 46 and a half pounds and like i said there are people that can get way lighter than that and um but that that seems to be the where i where i'm at and <laughs> the the last few pounds is is money you probably know that chuck blake like it's it's oh, thousands of dollars an ounce exactly yeah. Yeah. It, it's just trimming the fat. Um, 
and that last little bit is just more and more money it really adds up and uh but like you know 40 under a sub 50 pound pack for that amount of time solo to me is 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 comfortable makes my hiking a lot more comfortable and i can really move around yeah and i think the big variable uh, when you start to get right down to ounces is very personal and that's in your food right like i know i've talked to you about food before and and you um you kind of starve yourself right i mean you you're you don't eat a lot of food from what i've i've seen your food list and um you know i think that again i mean there's a fine line there on nutrition caloric deficit um and also you know how uncomfortable do you feel that you can be on a on a backpack trip that determines weight too right creature comforts the little things you know I think the 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 say what's that saying you know what if weighs a lot and it really yeah. does and if you if you can try and find dual purpose items that you can carry on your pack um, one of the things Blake and I started packing the last couple of years was an ultralight tarp uh, between the two of us and last year it was a game changer for us for the simple fact that uh, where we were hunting we we had a long ways to go for water and it was really hard to find. And we, uh, we set up a water cache in uh, sort of in a hole right by our camp. And we left our tarp there uh, overnight when it was raining and came up the next, woke up the next morning and we had two gallons of water, which was like amazing. That saved our hunt. Wow. Otherwise we'd have wow. spent half the time, you know, chasing water. Right. So, um, yeah. and I think you, you said it to me once before, it's like, you know, you have to, you have to look at your shelter as a, a shelter it's a place to sleep. It's a place to, you know, store your stuff. But, you know, if you're going to be a successful sheep hunter, you're not going to be in that tent much. So you got to have the right gear as far as rain gear goes and uh, a layering system and the rest of it. Right. So um, yeah. maybe talk, tell us a little bit about your setup for clothing and, and, you know, like how you, how do you prep your gear? What do you take? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I long ago I separated uh, wants from needs, and, um, and that extends for my whole hunting kit. And there are times when I'm I could be more comfortable, but I'm not that comfortable just because I've I, I've shaved it right down, and I'm right on that bubble of uh, if I go to if I leave other things out, um, I could leave myself exposed a little bit. So I do have. A bit of a redundancy built into my clothing system and so like most people i run um you know a quick dry layer like a quick dry t-shirt or or whatnot i tend to run darker colors for all of my base layer stuff because um when you know through hiking and whatnot you do get so i get wet i sweat and um Dark colors seem to dry faster in the sun than wearing something quite light colored. Um, so you're just little things like that, a lot of little details. And so I, I wear like a, a wicking sort of shirt and um, typically hiking in my T-shirt in August. I wear a um, very sort of light uh, hiking pant. And, um, you know, we, we all have our favorite boots. I just, I, I personally run one from the guys down at uh, Lathrop's and Sons there. Those guys, I run their, uh, I think it's their hand wog that, they, that I use. And um, 
I've gone through all the different boots over the years and, and there's not one that stands out. I've seen them all with the, with the customers with Riverjet and some fail. I've seen the best brands fail and I've seen the worst ones hold up. And um, it's kind of like cars, Ford and Chevy and, and GMC and, and Dodge, you know, they all, they all have their advantages. And um, so for, for the, that's my base layer, sort of a quick, dry, darker colored base layer. Um, I don't really run any wool, merino wool of any kind, just my personal preference. Um, and then from there, I have just a full layering system all the way up with um, puffies, lots of puffies. I have two puffy jackets, ultralight puffy jackets, puffy pants. And uh, because I'm typically above tree line, uh, sort of tap dancing on the mountains there, I'm, uh, I'm able to get away with those light fabrics and not worry about them ripping. Um, so I'm, I'm wearing sort of, you know, the, the trade-off for my system is you're constantly having to stop and layer up or layer down. And you cannot, you have to be disciplined. You can't, you know, if there's a rainstorm coming, you can't just try and power through it. You have to stop. You have to put on your rain gear. Then you go again. The rainstorm passes, you have to stop, take off your rain gear. And so you don't sort of overheat and, and get, uh, you know, too sweaty or soaking. So uh, my layering system is is a pretty standard one. It's just sort of light materials. I bring um, sort of a, a heavier, um, almost like a sweatshirt type material. It's they market it as quick dry, but it's any sweatshirt will do not like a cotton one, but like um, I can't think of the actual exact model of the one, but it's it's one that when I get to camp and I put that on so that I don't get the chills and it actually will help that that under layer dry. You know, it, it dries usually within a half hour. It's uncomfortable at the time, but after 30 minutes, you're kind of starting to warm up and dry because you've got all your layers on keeping warm. So that's kind of my, my setup is base layers and then uh, medium layers and then sort of one outer layer and then a uh, rain gear layer as well. So then like with socks, uh, socks and underwear, do you take spares? I bring, um, so everybody's feet are different and with proper fitting boots, my, um, I think I personally wear a sock liner and then a sort of a lightweight hiking sock. I, the brand that I run right now is called darn tough. They're uh, an excellent brand, but there's, there's also, uh, other ones out there. I don't want to be telling guys one exact specific brand. I, cause sometimes it's pretty expensive. And, um, so I just say, get, get what you can afford, get the best you can. Um, so I run sort of a, a liner sock and then a lightweight hiker, and um, I'm bringing typically one change of socks and one change of underwear. I know it's gross, but uh, what That's I do is 46 pounds. <laughs> well, every, every night in the tent is a, is a reset. I look at it as a reset. So if I have damp feet from hiking, um, I go to bed with those socks on. And in the morning, everything's bone dry, and it's it's a good hard reset for the next day. Yeah, those uh, those darn tough socks are great. Uh, just a side note: if you do buy them, it's socks for life because if you punch a hole in one, you just 
put them in an envelope, mail them back to darn tough and they send you new ones. I, I started running darn tough every day for everything because they got different types and uh, I've haven't bought socks since. So just a sidebar. Yeah. Here, but yeah, they're great. Uh, they're great socks for sure. And um, yeah, exactly. I didn't know. I thought socks were not. I, I thought all socks were equal. They're actually not. I was educated by a gentleman. Uh, um, Bob Hodgson's from Barney Sports years and years ago, and he told me that socks are completely uh, different um, in terms of manufacturing and performance, and uh, that was his recommendation at the time, and I've never looked back. So, Right on. Um, on as far as the sleep system goes, Kevin, are you a down or synthetic bag guy? What do you like to run? I run a down system. The bag I run right now is by a company called Western Mountaineering. Mm -hmm. And um, they make various models. On the early season, I'll bring the, the, the earlier sort of lighter bag. And um, later in the year, if I'm doing sort of later hunts, I switch to their warmer bag. But I'm, I'm also bringing my, um, my puffy gear as well. So I typically sleep with my puffy pants and my puffy jacket um just just because the lighter the lighter you can get on your sleeping bag and you can make up that temperature difference by wearing some extra layers uh you you'll be totally comfortable throughout the night and um you know even with my medium weight or sorry my medium temperature setup i've been in the the high mountains over in kyrgyzstan and and also in the Rockies here and been totally comfortable doing that. And uh, so I run a, that Western Mountain, Western Mountaineering bag. I go to absolute great lengths to keep that bag dry. And every single thing in my pack, whether it be food or clothing, is in separate uh, waterproof com compression sacks. So the, the, the ultra lightweight sill ones, uh, I know there's a company, I think it's called Sea to Summit. They make a really good sort of compression yeah. bag that's really lightweight. And I, my sleeping bag goes in one separately and everything else does. So if you do have tip over in, in the creek or you get a rainstorm that pushes through your pack somehow or your water bottle spills, which which has happened, your everything is staying bone dry. So. Yeah, I think a, a lot of guys have switched over to that system where it's, and it also helps with, if you have the bags for organization too, right? You don't have to do a yard sale every time you, you have to have a meal or change a layer or something, right? So, yeah, yeah, exactly, uh, for sure. All right, cool. Let's let's talk a little bit about water and, uh, you know, two things that I, th that I think a lot of people overlook is, um, or maybe don't quite understand. One is finding water. Um, tips and tricks for that. I know you've uh, you've given us some gems as far as how to find them, and then water management. I know uh, that's also something that you you were um, pretty disciplined at as far as conserving water throughout the day. So maybe and and I don't think you filter right, or maybe you switched now, but I don't think you did before. So tell us about that. No, no, I don't bring the actual filters. Um, they're just um, and and I know a lot of guys do bring those. I just. I just find that I, I can perfectly uh, feel feel comfortable drinking water with a with a little pill that you put in there. It makes it taste like crap, but um, it's it, I'm not there to, you know, savor the food or, or love the water. It's it's just a necessity. So I bring something that just doesn't take up any space or weight, 
So I, I just used like the little, um, the little purification pills there. And I'm typically mixing my water with, with some sort of drink mix. So it, it helps. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I use, uh, that sort of system to purify my water. One of the things I do, which is maybe a little different from a lot of guys is I bring two ultralight water bladders and a lot of guys would, you know, I see show up when I was um, in the North and taking customers out there and they would, they would have, they would have one big water bladder. And I don't know how many guys would have that fail on them for one reason or another. And by bringing two ultralight water bladders, one of them actually just sits in the bottom of my pack. It rarely gets used, but it, what that does is that that's a bit of a redundancy into the system. If you do have one fail on you, you've got a second one. And also more importantly, when you're up at elevation, you don't have to make these big, because my pack is so light, you don't have to make these big treks for water when you find your last source of water you can fill both of those bladders up and typically my partner and i will have about 23 liters will last us about three days and um so we camp. you know my style is to camp quite high at elevation i don't usually camp way down in the bottoms i'm usually up on the mountain and by having that amount of water up there with two of us it, it really does help. And I do not really drink that much during the day. My, my, my current partner does, he's a bit of a, a water hog, but um, I typically will drink about one liter of water throughout the day, regardless if I'm sitting or working hard. I just have one liter of water. Yes, I'm in a bit of a deficit for uh, dehydration, but um, one liter of water seems to serve me and uh, lets me sort of stay, you know, where I need to be without having to to run down the mountain and, and try and replenish. Yeah, and that's a, again, that's a personal thing, right? I mean, you know your own body and you know how much water you're going to use. Like you say, your partner, um, people get cramps, people get headaches. I mean, the, they get early signs of dehydration just depending on, on their whole system, right? So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's certainly personal. The, that that water when I'm talking about one liter a day is after my last water source. So when I'm hiking in on a trail and I think that I'm coming to my last water source, I'm going to be pounding a whole liter of water and then refilling everything up my my sort of uh, one liter water bottle and my water bladders and then I go from there. So it's not like I'm if I have the opportunity if I find water up top I'm drinking as much of it as I can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Kevin, um, I got a question for you. Um, yeah. Could you uh, could you talk a bit about your food? I know we touched on it briefly at the beginning, but uh, like maybe uh, just for everyone, like give us an example of a day of like what you would actually consume from the time you wake up to when you go to bed. Sure. Yeah. Um, so with, with food, I bring um, I've had all, all of the different foods over the years, but right now I'm using the peak performance uh, meals. And I have one of those a day uh, as a dinner. So we'll start there. I'll have a dinner. And um, during the day, I have typically, I'll just nibble on some, some nuts or something like a bar of some kind. Um, 
uh, uh, it might be like a protein bar or something, but that's it. I don't really eat a lot during the day. Um, for breakfast, I'll usually have, um, you know, the what's really light, sadly, are those, those instant oat things, little instant oatmeals. I'll even actually sometimes have a, um, the breakfast version of the of the peak performance makes a great breakfast version. Um, so I'll have uh, I'll have that. I, I don't really eat that much on a hunt. Um, and uh, I know some guys they can't they can't go without their food. I, I just don't I'm not that hungry. I'm typically working so hard in, in the hikes, gaining elevation and um, just my that's just my style. And I don't spend too much time in one place. And um, so, yeah, for, for meals, that's kind of my style. I just have, I, I budget for uh, a peak performance dinner every night and like a hot tea after dinner. And, and that's it really. Like there's, there's, mm -hmm. it's pretty simple. Is, uh, is that where you'd say you cut the most weight compared to the average sheep hunter? Or um, I'd be curious to know, like, is there things that you just don't bring that you see most people bringing that just add pounds to the backpack? Um, yeah, I mean, my food is one, like inevitably you're going to have to carry the food and the weight and you can save a little bit there. Um, you know, like I said, I don't snack a lot during the day. So it, it, it typically is quite a bit lighter. It could be like 20% lighter than, than the next guy. Um, and it's, it also doesn't take up a lot of room in my pack being sort of a less volume, um, going back to my sleep system there that thing that thing compresses down to the size of a of, of a volleyball you know it's it's quite small and my clothing because i don't bring a heck of a lot of extra clothing that's the size of a volleyball as well so when you add it all together in your pack you're not taking this big bulky thing and it's it's considerably lighter so yeah i mean food is definitely one that you can save weight but that's that comes with a, an asterisk because you definitely if your body needs that you should be taking that um you know for sure yeah and again that's personal right i mean it's about you know what the body needs i, I don't think it's uh, at the end of the day with most with most hunters it's it's about what the body needs not so much what the the choice of of weight that you're going to bring i know just in the last couple of years uh personally for me i think blake's got his dial down he knows exactly what he's going to eat in a day and you know plus or minus some days when you're just glassing you're not eating as much some days when you're doing a big push you're going to eat a baby a third more than you did the day before uh but for me I've, I've been able to knock down like i think go back four or five years ago i probably had close to two pounds a day of food like a pound and a half pound three quarters and now um I know exactly what I need and I'm, I'm just over a pound a day and I'm still many days, I'm still sitting there with extra food at the end, but it's kind of found that sweet spot where I don't want to drop anymore. Um, yeah. What about, well, um, the, sorry, go right. ahead, Kev. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say the, the average weight I would see. Um, so I, I, over the years I, I, I took, um, you know, got to know and take a lot of different sheep hunters. And the average I would see is about a little over 60 pounds for 10 days, 10 to 12 days would be 60 pounds or even more. And, um, 
you know, that's, I, I would see what they would bring for clothes and they, they'd have like triples of, of everything, you know, they'd have four pairs of socks and, and I think if you can shave things and, and be really smart about, uh, you know, your moisture and, and keeping things dry, you can, you can get away like that. Like I said earlier, that hard reset every night in the tent really helps having your, your base layer and your socks and everything bone dry in the morning. And you don't need to bring four pairs of socks. You can get away with the ones that you're wearing and then another set as well. Well, also then you got warm clothes will, will help you get your ass out of bed in the morning. Cause otherwise if you're looking at your <laughs> wet socks hanging there, you're like, Oh shit, I don't want to get up. Yeah. You know, there's that discipline side of it again. Right. So, um, what are what are some of the tips that you could offer um, sort of the newer mount, mountain hunters on locating water and science to look for when, you know, if you're glassing a ridge or glassing a bull, like what tips can you offer them for finding water sources? Sure. Um, the, the water thing, finding it up top, it's it's a bit of luck. It's a bit of skill. Um, you, you never know where there could be a little spring pop out of the rocks. And a lot of the ones I found up where I was, you know, uh, working all those years were, were just boot leather on the ground and stumbling across ones. And um, I can remember one spot where I actually was watching some mountain goats way up in the rocks. And they were actually in sheep country, really good sheep country. And they all kind of came down and they just stuck their head in the rocks, each one, for about, you know, a minute or two. And then the next one would do the same thing. And I ended up hiking all the way up the draw to try and find what was in there. I thought it might be a lick, but it was a little bit of water in there. And that's actually where I ended up getting my water from. It was, um, you know, made a little pond in there out of rocks and, and got water from there. So that was just observation of just looking at the animals. Um, you know, there's the typical things. If you see the, the, the swale in the ground, there's more likelihood of water usually on the mountainside it's tough because the water is under the scree and you have to kind of go a little bit lower in elevation and um, you can kind of find them just by looking at the draws and the various landforms a bit of greenery um, usually the vegetation will be a little bit different right at the where the water is um, so that's kind of what i would do to try and find water is just combine all those different factors together and and just go hike it you never know until you go look at it. And then, of course, don't walk by water to look for water, right? If you, oh, my water yeah. bottle's almost full, I'm okay. Just like you said, drink a liter, refill, and go, yeah. right? It takes a lot of discipline to do that, to, to always be like filling your bottle up, topping it up. Fill, you know, is this our last water source? Yeah, I think it is. Okay, let's fill up our bladders. Oh, well, yeah. it's going to add weight. Well, you got it. If you're running... For, you know, 50 pound backpack, putting 10 extra pounds on there. That's no big deal. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we made, um, we made kind of a mistake on our first day last year when we left the river. Uh, we did not load up on water completely at the river. We just had a water bottle each. And uh, part of it was advice from one of the other guys on, oh, you go up this way and there's a creek, you'll be fine. Well, we got started and we were just in, in a hurry and excited. And we didn't find water. We hiked for, well, we bushwhacked for six and a half, seven hours, right to dark. And we were down 
to virtually no water and you were just like praying for the creek and all of a sudden bang we come over the hill and in the bush and there was a creek and we got lucky but that's a mistake you only make yeah, once wow. right so uh, wow yeah it's definitely you don't want like you said earlier you don't want to be walking by your last water source and hoping and a lot of guys would say well you know i would always be careful in giving any advice for water because that spring may not be bubbling out of there from year to year there were one there are areas up there that i know are really reliable that never change but you never know so like you said you got to just have that you got to stop you got to fill everything up hydrate and then if you think it's your last water source you got you have to kind of act accordingly hey let's let's talk about uh tactics on on sheep hunting now we've got the the packing and the gear and all that stuff kind of sorted out um what are some of the things you look for and i guess what would be i guess it's a two-part question uh what's your glassing strategy and your sort of what a terrain feature strategy that you're looking for uh when you're on the mountain it's easy to like it's easy to do the e-scouting and kind of map out the you know the drainages and all that but when you get out there like what's the first thing you do when you get to a bowl or and i guess i got a lot more questions but are you are you trying to get to the top or are you looking from the bottom i think that's one of the questions that came up earlier today on our uh on the platform yeah for sure um well i i try to first of all increase my odds as much as possible by getting into what i feel is really good ram country and they do say, um, what is it? 10% uh, of the mountain, 10% of the mountains hold 90% of the rams. And, you know, if I'm in an area and I see a whole pile of using lambs, I'm not gonna really hang out there too much. I'm gonna kind of try and find some mountains within striking distance of, of those using lambs. Um, but when I do get to an area, let's say I'm not familiar with the area, I'm gonna just try and find a vantage point it gives me the the best view of the mountain. Um, it really depends on so many factors. There's the time of the day in the morning, they're going to be up and feeding. But during the hot days of August, uh, you know, they could be bedded down in the tall grass or or in the cliffs in the wind. So um, what I like to do is just find a really good glassing knob or a glassing area. If it means climbing an opposite mountain to see a mountain, uh, I'll do that and just set up there and it is uh i you know there's all different ways to do it but what works for me is a grid pattern dividing the mountain up and you know how when you look at a mountain there's always like the sexy place that you think you should see rams there and i i avoid the urge to just focus right in on there and i set up my spotter and i just, just do a grid i divide the mountain up and i just go so slow and I do the whole grid and then I start again and then again. And I'll sometimes it takes me a half hour to do the grid. And I do a lot of glassing. Um, I really have, have had good success over the years in my, my areas that I hunt. Um, you know, finding, I, I tend now to hunt areas that don't hold as many sheep, but hold bigger rounds. And so it's, it's all about finding them. So I spend a ton of time trying to find that one or, or two rams in that area and not 
not really in areas where there's going to be a, a band of 10 or 12 or 15 rounds in one, one area. So um, when you mentioned um, the use right at the start of that, you said, you know, you, you're going to start glassing for rams within striking distance. What, what do you think striking distance is? One kilometer, two, three, five? I guess it depends on the terrain, right? It, it does. I, I've seen, uh, I'm pretty familiar with, with some of those mountain areas up there. And I've seen, I've seen Ram, Ram mountains close to where the use of sort of the maternity areas, um, quite close. And I've seen them quite far as much as like four or five kilometers away. And, um, I've seen them in pop up in the craziest places as well. And so, it is a bit of a, you know, you're armed with the knowledge of sort of where you should be focusing, but be open to to looking in non-traditional areas for sheep, for sure. So, you know, it could be anywhere within a few clicks or to even a little bit more. Yeah, and I guess really, too, like uh, I've been asked this before and, and you know, now I think this is going on my fifth year of, of sheep hunting. Uh, people have said, well, what terrain are they in? And my answer to that is, well, they can be in any terrain. I mean, for sure, you you know those sexy mountains like you referred to. But uh, just last year, Blake and I were glassing a sexy mountain, and uh, we were right up on a spine, and I turned around and, and just went over to look look over the backside, and there was four ewes right below me at 200 yards walking right through the thickest timber you could imagine. And so, like, realistically, they could be anywhere. Um, do you think it's more so... Um, I guess on a day-to-day -day basis, is it more so a time of day that you think would be more effective as opposed to a certain type of terrain? Like when you're glassing that mountain uh, and you're picking it apart, is it rocks or grass or do you have it, do you feel that there's any real difference or do you think it's better at five o'clock in the morning versus 10 o'clock in the morning? Yeah, um, I definitely am a believer that you should be up early it takes a lot of discipline, especially if you're tired from a long hike in or whatnot, sore. It, it's hard to get out of bed before light. And But, you know, it's been good for me over the years to be up up on the mountain right at the crack of dawn. Uh, you know, the, the sheep behave where, where I hunt there. They're up right in the morning, first light, and they're grazing around, moving around. Um, they're a lot easier to spot. And, you know, they're, they're, they're in the grass, they're in the rocks, they're, they're kind of spread out. Um, they don't sort of congregate in one area all the time. Um, I've never been able to put a, a real specific pattern on them, on, on stone sheep in particular. Um, I, I've got general patterns, but not specific ones. And so like, you know, during the day when it's hot up there in August, I spend a lot, a lot of time up there and in July and August, and they are bedded down in the heat of the day. And they're, you know, they're really tough to find then. And I've, I've said how many times, I, I Chuck, I think you've actually hunted some of those areas that I've been in there and you, where they sit in the grass, you'll never see them. They're so hard to find and maybe one, you know, they'll stand up and stretch and then, and then re-bed down again. And that's when you can kind of pick up that horn or, or see his, his white ass. And, um, looking at the you know toward the evening is is a good time as well those sheep are up and feeding when it cools off they'll be up uh you know if the bugs are bad they could 
where, where I hunt, they'll either be up high on the ridges or they'll be down. They'll be down in the trees and the timbers. And so right before as it's getting dark or cooling off is a really good time. You want to be situated and, and glassing and spending as much time just slowly glassing. And, um, you know, some guys like to have a nap during the middle of the day. It seems like my partner always does. I never get to. And um, I like to just keep glassing. It's I've picked out a lot of sheep over the years, just seeing that sort of tip of the horn or the ear flicker in the grass. And, uh, and then you just, it's a waiting game to see them when they stand up. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, there's a, I heard somebody say once, you know, why would you sleep on a sheep hunt during the day? You got 350 days left in the rest of the year to sleep, right? So you might as well try. It's easy to say, but um, a little harder to do than to try not to nap when you're, you're just gassed, yeah. right? So, yeah, it, it definitely can be, um, there's so much discipline eh, in, in sheep hunting and, it can be somewhat of a non-enjoyable experience sometimes, especially if you haven't trained. You know, you think about it, you're battling the elements, you're you're hungry sometimes, you're tired, you're fatigued, and something hurts and sore. And but you know, it's that if you do get lucky and you do get a sheep down, then then that's the time to be resting and sleeping and eating and doing all that stuff. And it seems to be a, a recipe that's worked for me over the years. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's certainly no replacement for, you know, 110% as many days as you can possibly give it. Right. Like that's, that's really the success behind most sheep hunters is just embracing the suck and grinding it out. Like you you really have to, and it does take time. It takes years of trying, you know, to, to be able to get disciplined enough uh, to, to make sure you do that. Um, Blake, is there any questions on uh, terrain and stuff from the from the members? Did you see anything there? Uh, yeah, we've got. There's a couple different questions. Um, one of them in the chat here is from Luke. He was just asking uh, for people that aren't able to get boots on the ground ahead of season, um, and they sort of spend their time e scouting. Are there any tips that you could share or clues that you have of like, you know? On fat maps on Google Earth, like what looks like it could be good ram terrain or sheep terrain. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I spend a lot of time e-scouting as well. I'm, I'm a bit of a, a nerd that way. And like you are Chuck, I know. And uh, I would say, um, you know, if you're, if you know, you're looking in sheep country, I like to look for uh, sort of some of the shale, the black shale or the dark colored um, sort of cliff bands You'll often see them bedding in that. Uh, even in the middle of the day, they'll bed when it's blistering hot. They'll, for some reason, they like sitting in uh, some of those um, sort of that darker colored shaley stuff. Um, you know, it's it, it's hard to kind of just say this is exactly the one I look for. It's it's uh, I look for escape terrain, so that's a really big one. They need to have they need to feel safe. Um, what else? Um, what yeah, does so like? yeah, I was just going to ask, like, what does escape train look like to you? That's a essentially, is it just like cliffy stuff for them to kind of run off into, or like, what would you define that as? Yeah, it, it is for me. It's what I look for: escape train. It's it's cliffy, but not too cliffy. Um, you get too cliffy, you're in the mountain goat stuff. Um, but surprisingly, sheep do go through there, no problem. Um, 
so they you know those those sheep will be up and feeding around and and but they will they will always seem to be somewhere where they can run if they're threatened and be reasonably safe so i've never um found them out in the wide open flats you know if they if there was a, a wolf or or a bear that they can run run them down or somehow hunt them there they don't seem to be out there when i find them i they're always sort of closer into the the cliff areas or or rolled over the top somewhere where they can quickly zip and, and dive into some cliff cliffy sort of really rocky terrain or steep enough that um, they can move quite quite easily with their with their footwear versus a grizzly bear which i've seen lots over the years wolves and grizzly bears chase those those sheep around and um so yeah i mean I don't know. It's, it's, that's a really tough question. That's a great question, Luke. I, I'm not really sure if there's one exact or one or two sort of smoking guns that give it away for Ram, Ram Mountains. Okay, we got to take a break for a little funny uh, comment here. You got to read Cole Hanks to Kevin. Did you see his, Blake? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, so, yeah, go ahead, Dad. I was just going to say, Cole Hank, he says, allegedly, he's the stig of jet boat drivers. Some say he dislikes the use of UHMW due to added weight and forgiveness for F-ups. <laughs> so, <laughs> <I'm>, uh, <laughs> yeah, I figured you'd know where that was coming from. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, just a quick comment on that. I, I ran a couple of different boats up in the north there and one my, my sort of main work boat didn't have any plastic or UHMW on the bottom but when you run the river uh I was I actually didn't run that to Shoddy River so many times that I memorized where most of the rocks were so as long as you yeah could get your boat to do what you want it to do you were fine um and uh I'm not against UHMW in fact the my my other boat has some of that so uh <laughs> that's but that's pretty funny thanks cole <laughs> it is yeah I, that's awesome um so when you're working an area and you've uh you know you've glassed and not found sheep at what point do you say all right it's time to move on because i know i know your system you're pretty unique in this in that your strategy is you go in quite a bit early you're not you don't go the day before you have the luxury of knowing the areas You've been in a lot of sheep country and you do most of your work before the season. How long do you give an area, say a drainage that you, you know, you had high hopes for? Is it one day, two days? Like do you go by feeding cycles? Talk, talk to us about that, Kev. Yeah. Um, a lot of those areas up there where I go, um, you can go up there and you'll find bands of rams in the same general area every year. I know guys that go hunt the same exact hillside on the same mountain every single year and they have success and um so i i try to stick away or you know stay away from those types of areas um for me it, it's not about killing a ram it's about finding the special ram now and I, i've found that through hunting non-traditional areas but man i i spent a lot of time in some of those drains up there it, you know you know like if you don't see sheep trails if you don't see any of the sheep shit on the mountains you kind of get a sense that maybe they're either you know they could be around or the sign's really old but they might be in the you know maybe a south facing drainage or, or um, an east facing drainage not the one that you're in 
And so you want to dump over and keep looking. So I would, I kind of take all those factors when I, when I, into consideration, when I look at a drain, if I know that there's sheep there from, from history or whatever, I'm spending more time there. But if I'm just cruising through, I'm, I'm looking, if I don't see some of those signs, I'm going to be moving on for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you mentioned to me that, you know, your tactics have changed a little bit over the last couple of years. You're starting to hit those fringe areas now because that's, you know, like you said, you're not you're not looking for quantity of sheep. You're looking for quality. And you put a lot of miles on, right? Like last year, I mean, how many K you guys had? You got pack rafts and everything on that last trip. Yeah, um, we, we tried some new stuff last year. Um, the last three hunts I've done was 88 kilometers then 130 kilometers, and then um, the most was just under 200 kilometers. And that's because we're we're really, my partner and I are just really searching for special rams. And we, you know, we saw, last year we saw the, you know, Wayne Gretzky. It was 99 rams that we saw last year. And it's, we really, but we're also, to be fair, we're looking in some areas where there's a lot of different sheep and a lot of guys go, we're just looking for something that's extraordinary. And um, so I, you know, it's, I, I do now believe for myself that I'm, I'm focusing on fringe areas, timbered, some of the timbered hillsides seem to hold some bigger rams. Um, I, I've been quite fortunate and lucky and, and harvested a couple of tremendous sheep over the years and they've come from non-traditional fringe areas and the the downside of that is you're not going to see that many sheep if you really focus on those areas you're not going to see as many sheep um, but chances are they haven't been looked at you know either by an outfitter or, or other hunters they're going to be um, you know have a greater chance to be at being sort of quality bigger older rams I really love older rams and um and yeah so i mean just just really for me my my tactic has changed you're right i do focus on the fringe now uh, for maybe the last four years um but before that i was going into lots of those same areas that a lot of guys hunt and you see lots of sheep and it's great you see lots of legal rounds um but i just i'm just really now more picky i guess getting older <laughs> Well, you're getting we had, older, but uh, you're doing 200 kilometers on a trip. You're you're there for the adventure. Let's be honest, right? There's that well, plus the ram. Yeah, we would we would go up a drain, and then um, you know we we would go sort of take one detour, and that's like 15 kilometers one way, and then you come back 15 kilometers, and we would see lots of nice sheep up there, but just not something we're interested in. And my partner has the same mindset as me. We hunt well together. Um, he's, uh, he's quite a sheep hunter himself and, um, he's really picky and that's what, what attracts me to, to hit, to, uh, hunting with him. And so, yeah, we, we definitely do th those miles are like fast miles when we're, when we're light, when you're going in a drain on a, on a trail and, and you're not able to look at any sheep, you're, you're moving and we actually hike quite fast and so yeah we, we we put on a lot of miles for sure i don't know if i can keep that up though getting really old <laughs> blake kevin a question yeah um you were talking about hunting timber a little bit earlier there 
uh Caden was asking on Instagram he was just wondering like uh do you have any thoughts or like tips on hunting timber timber areas any kind of knowledge or just ideas you could share about that that's a um hunting the the when I mean timber it's not usually the thickest timber right to the top you're not because you can't obviously glass into there but it's kind of that sparse timber and um it's tough I mean you I do have a bit of knowledge, so I kind of do know where to, to look, but the, the, there was a, a really beautiful ram that we were lucky enough to, to harvest uh, four or five years ago with, with my partner. And um, he, you know, that ram lived in a timbered area and I found that sheep by just fluke, by just camping out. I was in between in between trips of, of clients and I just, you know, like I always did, I would just hike up a mountain and camp and just look, just spend time up there. And it was it was a mountain that you would never think where sheep were on. I was looking for elk and boom, there's there's a band of, of, of rams there. And I was able to to uh, to, you know, find find those sheep and watch them for years. I actually watched those rams for quite a few years and. Um, and then, to, and then I went in there with my partner and, and he got, uh, he was lucky to harvest that ram. And um, so tim, there isn't a, a playbook for hunting timbered areas. It's, it's tough. They don't, some rams spend a little bit of time there, not all their time. You never know. It's, but I, I definitely do look now more in those fringy areas and not just on those sexy green grassy hillsides that are at high elevation well that makes sense too right because you know you'll be you might glass the sheep on the sexy grassy slope you know one evening then you go back the next morning and they're not there and you're looking all over the mountain for them quite likely they're probably down in the timber or there's a good chance of it and like you said in this case uh uh you know you just you got lucky right but i'm just curious kev is that the ram the 44 birthday ram yeah, that's right. Yeah. You got her. Yep. Yeah. Nice. All right. That's very cool. And thanks for sharing that picture. It just causes me nightmares every night now. But anyway. Yeah. Um, well, I've, I've been, people bug me to put more pictures out there on, I don't really do the social media or the internet thing with my photos. I'm pretty, pretty tight lipped about things and um, just personally, but I, I do enjoy helping a lot of people, but I, I just don't like to put my own personal uh, rams too much out there i'm just yeah for sure that way. i'm a weirdo no you're definitely not you're just a sheep hunter because that's how the that's how it rolls yeah. <laughs> um so what about uh locations for your camp there's something that i was curious about like you're you like to be up top so uh, i know certain areas you you just can't just race up the mountain because you come in from the bottom of a drainage you could be scaring everything out of there as you move. Uh, what do you try to look for for a location um, in terms of out of sight, out of mind from the sheep or what's your yeah. strategy there? Well, the, the, the complete sort of dream for a spot would be at elevation, near water, nice camping area, out of the wind, out of the weather, um, somewhere where you're not going to be seen by sheep. Um, I never, and one of the things I don't do is I, I don't have fires. I just believe that um, announcing your presence, you know, one way or the other is just, it's just one thing. That's a, that's a, a want. And 
I have had fires. I should full disclosure. It's there's times when you when I've been wet or whatever, and I need a fire. But typically on a hunt, I won't have a fire until um, you know maybe we harvest a ram or whatnot. But I like to be at elevation where I where I can see, where I can glass. And um, I remember there's there was one year up where, when I was running river jet that I, I pitched my tent. I actually wrote us an article about this years ago that in the morning from my tent, I set up the spotter and I crawled out of my tent. I was just kind of sitting next to the fly and I looked around my tent and I spotted 52 rounds from my tent. And it, it was amazing there. I ended up actually harvesting a really nice ram that, that um, was over 170. And um, so that, I mean, I'd like to just camp some guys like to be down in the trees. I like to camp up high, but very inconspicuous. I'm not on the ridge where I'm going to be on a sheep trail or they're going to be, they're going to see movement. I'm sort of tucked into a little nook. And so I'm out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I kind of agree with you on the fire. Because um, usually if there's more than one person and you light a fire, within five minutes, you're both talking. And before you know it, you're talking loud or you're snapping logs. And it's not just the fire and the smoke, it's the whole experience, right? So I could see that happening. I, I hunted with a couple of guys a couple of years ago that were dying to start a fire. And you know, the spot we were in, Kevin, and it was, that was the year we ended up taking a ram. And I had the, we, I made sure we camped on the backside of the bowl so that we were nowhere near them where the wind was not blowing right up the valley. And I don't know if it helped or not, but uh, you got to be, you got to be aware of that. And some guys would probably argue and say, it doesn't matter. They smell forest fires, but like I think my theory is it's not just the fire. It's the noise around the fire too. Yeah. I don't know if it it really affects the hunting or not. I just, if it, if there's a chance that it does, I'm going to minimize that chance. So that's why we don't. Awesome. Um, So once you found your ram that, that you want to take, you know, how do you, how do you plan out your stock? I know obviously that's going to be situational, but in general, what are kind of like the top three things that you put top of mind before you even, you know, put your spotter or binos away? What's, what's the first three things you do when you're getting ready to, to make a stock on a ram? Yeah, I'm, I'm um, and, and uh, the last few years that we've had success, this exact scenario has happened where we do see the ram the night before, put it to bed. We're up way before light, packed up, ready to go, going light, going fast. We've we've spotted them at sort of greater distances typically, so we have to cover a lot of distance. Picking up the rams at first light, and I'm looking for a route where I can get into a shooting position that takes into account the wind. Obviously, every you know we're all good hunters here, and we all know that the wind plays a really big factor. Um, I'm typically getting closer. Um, I'm not really a big fan of shooting these ultra long distances at sheep in the mountains, so I'm typically shooting them, you know, 300 yards or below. And so, yeah, we look at we look at wind and terrain, um, where we can hike that's completely out of sight. There has been the odd, you know, slow belly crawl um, 
which actually happened on that on that ram blake i just see you put one there in the chat box there um that was a belly crawl full view of the sheep the sheep were 600 yards away and we had to crawl 100 yards in full view and that's that's discipline painful to go so slow but um yeah i mean sometimes you can you know avoid it and just get up on on the back side of a spine and and peek over um so yeah when i when i'm when i'm planning that final stock i'm i'm taking into consideration the the wind the sun is is the sun going to be in my eyes i'd rather the sun be behind me in the sheep's eyes than mine um it, it and you're right chuck it's totally situational so i just i just try and you know as a hunter just pick the best most stealthy route up there with the wind in my favor and there are times when i get up there and it's just it's not possible and or or times you get up there you you take your eyes off the sheep you get into position and oh man the rams aren't there they're gone and you have no no idea where they are and then you just got to pull out rather than wander around we just pull out and and reassess so yeah i mean it's it's situational for sure i would say yeah no that's that's great advice you know and and i i think we all have uh, if you've been around sheep you know that if if you're careful with your movement you can actually get away with a little more than you think i mean i had experienced that a little bit myself and um again you know i think if they're above you and correct me if i'm wrong but if they're above you and they still feel safe and they see movement they're probably not going to freak out too much it's when they get your wind and if you make an aggressive move you know the belly crawl it's probably hard to argue i would imagine that the the sheep saw you guys when you were belly crawling right well, we, we, we don't know that they were looking exactly at us, but we were, we go so slow. It, it took us forever to sort of go that small distance. And then when, when we got out of sight, you're doing the, the mad dash to try and cover the ground. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know. It's, there, there are people that tell me that they walk. I had a, a gentleman actually act like a sheep. He went to the point of walking on all fours and simulating grazing the grass and he got a 40 inch ram out of that so i, I wonder how much food food he packed that day yeah exactly no i mean it's uh i don't really know i mean i know the sheep are are amazing what they can see they can really spot that movement like you're saying um and uh, I, I and i have sure scared i've scared my fair share of rams for sure so yeah exactly so are you i forgot to ask you are you a trekking pole guy do you pack poles now <laughs> funny funny enough i do now um for many years i did not and i would tease some of the guys and call them training wheels but um now i totally pack two poles and uh never look back absolutely yeah yeah uh i'm a pole guy too i uh this year i'm trying something different i'm going to run one trekking pole and i actually have one of those carbon fiber mountain sticks so it's basically like uh it's like an uh an ice axe but it's the shaft is carbon fiber so i'm going to bring that along it weighs almost the same as my uh, carbon fiber trekking pole so i'm going to try that it's something i can you can glass off of it you can shoot off of it there's like obviously mechanical uses for you know moving rocks yeah. and stuff but 
The poles really, they make a difference, man, on your both uphill, downhill, long hauls. You know, I, I'm a believer too. Yep. No, I, I like the, I definitely am a fan of the trekking pole now for sure. Okay. So now Ram is down. Um, can you offer any tips for the, you know, the photos? I've seen some of your pictures. They're amazing. Uh, they're done off a cell phone, I'm sure. Uh, what are your, what are your kind of tips and tricks for guys once that the adrenaline is pumping and the Ram is down as far as the first things you guys do? Well, I mean, there are certainly some pictures I wish I was a professional photographer. They would have turned out a lot better. Um, if you're my partner, my partner typically cuts the top part of my face off in a photo. So don't do that. Um, but I would say like, um, you know, it's just having the light, uh, you know, the light is, is right. I actually do work in the film industry. So I know a little bit about how, how to take a photo. Um, but having the light behind the camera and, um, you know, there's a lot of guys wear a hat, take off your hat. So your face isn't in shadow and, and just, just savor the moment and relax and, and take a respectful photo too. I see a lot of guys, um, I just believe in like, uh, you know, not tower, you know, laying on top of it or putting a beer can on its hoof or whatever. It's just just be respectful and give thanks. And um, so, yeah, when the Ram's down and you take your photo, I, I actually uh, tape with my electrical tape that I have a little ring of it on my, my uh, barrel of my rifle. And um, I just tape that to my tripod for my spotter and just, you know, the 10 second timer, you do the, the uh, mad dash and jump in behind three, two, one click. So that's kind of what I would say is just, take more photos than what you think and um you can always delete them but if you haven't taken any you would be wishing you did so yeah exactly and and you know i always tell people when they look at the grip and grin and you know everybody here on the platform knows my position on the uh the grip and grin photos uh i'm a believer that photo is everything it encapsulates the whole journey the trip and i always tell people look at the trophy but take a second and just look at the smile on on you know the person's face or faces if it's two of you because that tells the story right there and that's honestly that's the memory that that's the reminder of the memory that you're going to have for the rest of your life right so those pictures yeah. are super important right yeah you you always remember that and um it's funny uh during the hunt i would always see my customers and they they uh would come back and They'd worked so hard and I would always tell them it's only sweat and it's never too far. And, it, you know, the other, the third one, you've probably heard this, Chuck, is it builds character and uh, go leave, go out there, enjoy yourself, you know, put it all out there. You won't remember the sore thighs at Christmas time when you're sipping rum and eggnogs, but you will, you know, if you get lucky and you have an animal and you look at the wall and you bring back you know, those memories and share those memories, that stuff there is, is gold. And you don't really remember the, the sore legs and the sore feet and, oh, I got a blister. I can't go on. Like, just, just remember that uh, after it's all said and done, that stuff all fades away, except those memories. Yeah, exactly. No, you, you, you nailed it right on the head there, buddy. Um, on the trophy care side of things, um, 
there's a lot of there's not a lot there's a couple different opinions on salt and trophy care and obviously in your case most of the time it's early season it's hot and yep. more often than not you're a long ways from your jet boat so what do you how, how do you guys handle your your cape and, and you know meat i guess as well uh as far as the care side of things post hunt on your way out yeah so um we debone all our sheep and um take our time doing it and we actually take everything out with these with the rams you you have to do that now um so we're taking neck meat rib meat and all that stuff um it's surprisingly not even the biggest sheep that that i've i've hiked out i've i've been fortunate enough for a big rocky and and hiked hiked that out it's not that bad and um so i i debone everything the hide, I, I um, take the hide obviously off the skull, get rid of the lower jawbone and, and just shave as much as you can off. Take your time with that hide. Your taxidermist will love you. Um, and for salt, I typically don't bring that much. And the reason being is I bring enough for one cape. And so if we get lucky and sort of last year we, we, we were lucky enough to harvest a couple of really really nice rams that salt is for that first cape and you you just need enough salt on there to slow down bacteria uh, you want to dry it i usually put it up in the wind in the sun up on the mountain on the rock and it will dry in one afternoon if the wind's blowing it actually will dry almost like it's, it's quite hard and, and crinkly almost like paper and if you take off as much meat and just have the hide, all that moisture is gone and it becomes super light. It's awesome. But, you know, there are times when you can't do that. When it's pissing rain or, or foggy or whatever, you can't get it dry. You put that salt on there just to keep that bacteria down. We always use really good quality game bags. Um, you know, there's uh, Caribou Gear makes some, Kuyu. Like all, all the manufacturers make pretty good quality game bags it protects it against the fly eggs that that can be a big problem um, but getting that salt in there and turning your your lips and your you know your eyes and your ears getting that salt rubbed in there and and hanging your cape up keeping it dry as much as you can and then you know what happened last year is we we were lucky enough to harvest a second ram a few days later and that when, when we do that, we are in going home mode. And if you keep your cape out of the, you know, dry, and as dry as you can, and you get it cooled down through the night, but don't let it sit in the sun and bake if, if it's down in the valley bottom. You want it definitely to be in the shade. Um, that, that cape will stay cool in temperature. And you have a good amount of time to get out. So, you know, we budget two and a half days to get out back to where we're going, the boat or whatnot. And that cape's totally fine. And once we're at that boat or, or truck or wherever, then you have more salt there and you just pound the salt to it. But we're, we're definitely, we're, we're taking, oh man, like maybe a pound of salt at the most, not even. So is that like a, a, a Gatorade bottle of, salt kind of what you do in your pack when one guy takes that up on the mountain yeah not i i'd always would re recommend that at least but for my partner and i we take a little bit less just because we've gotten better at the years that over the years of like making the capes 
so they don't require as much salt there's the less less sort of meat and flesh on it and you know taking the time to try and get those everything turned quite thin get all the hide thin and and dried in the air in the sun there yeah and you know with regards to the meat we had uh you mentioned quality game bags and that's you know i personally can't stress that enough i mean was three years ago when I was on the hunt with uh, the sheep hunt with the, the two other guys I took and we, we got a ram. Um, I had a couple of good quality game bags with me and the other guys had cheaper ones. And when we split all the meat up, I think there was like three or four bags of meat. When we got back to uh, the river, uh, we had about three days to wait for the jet boat to pick us up. And of course, we're consuming, you know, we're consuming sheep meat every day and we're enjoying it. And we pulled down uh, the bags the other guys had, and they had they had flies and, and eggs on their meat. My bag of meat luckily had like the tenderloins and uh, hindquarter in it. There was nothing; it was completely fine. So again, that's you know, like you you don't want to screw around with that for sure. We're actually going to do in the second segment in a couple of weeks. We're going to try and have a taxidermist on to talk about, you know, the actual trophy care and then uh, a couple other guests. I think we got lined up talking about meat as well. Um, the other thing, I guess I, you know, I think it's important now with the new regulations. I mean, we have a, Blake and I have a CEO in our family, so we hear all of this stuff. So um, with the new regulations on, you know, wanton waste and, and packing out your meat, uh, really important thing too is make sure once you have your carcass stripped down and completely all the meat off, take a ton of photos of that too because yeah. there was there was issues a couple of years ago not only with short sheep but with you know uh, guys getting charged with not bringing the meat out and at least if you have you know good documented photos of your meat bags, you got photos of your carcass and photos of you eating it. I mean, take those too. Like just in today's world, you never know, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I just want to circle back quickly and say, leave the cheesecloth at home. Exactly. Cheesecloth has no place, no place in hunting. Um, Corey Wilson, Blake, is asking, what knife are you using for skinning, Kevin? What do you use? Yeah, so I bring two knives on my hunts. One stays in my pack, never comes out. It's a, like a Kestrel titanium ultralight knife. I just, I just have it for whittling a stick. Um, I never bring sort of a buck knife or like a heavy knife. And my skinning knife is, um, I use just, just a Havilon, just the smaller Havilon with, with uh, I bring like half a dozen blades. I can do a whole sheep with one blade if I'm careful and not snap them when I'm doing the joints. But um, yeah, I use, a, Corey, I use a, a Havilon uh, knife. That's all I bring. Right on. What do we have any? There's another question up there too. I think from Luke, right? Blake. Yeah, we got we got a couple questions. Um, uh, let's see. And by the way, if anyone else has questions, now would be a good time. Dump them in the chat, and we'll we'll try and get to some. But uh, I see Caden was asking just your opinion, your experience, uh, early season versus late season for finding rams. I guess maybe just more generally, um, have you? Do you do any late season hunting uh, for sheep? Like, what's your thoughts on that sort of thing? Yeah, um, my pattern lately has been late later season for other sheep species. I'm, I've been helping some friends um, try and get get their big horns, maybe in the Kootenays, and uh, 
but I, I, I don't usually go for stone sheep later into the year. Normally it's beginning of the year because I'm looking for that one special ram and those great big ram nowadays, they don't, they don't last very long. They get seen by outfitters or other residents. And um, so you got to kind of be, you have to be Johnny on the spot. And uh, it, it does have its drawbacks going really early in August and, and sort of late July. There's, it can really be mentally challenging if you find a big ram to sit on it for five days. Another group of hunters can come in and not see you and shoot that ram on opening day. You never know. So it does have its its drawbacks. Um, I hunt the early season, um, but I, I've hunted stones late as well. I wouldn't say more mature rams at the end of the year. Some guys might disagree, but um if they're mature at the late season they were mature at the early season and so if you know where to look for them and how to get to them uh, you can harvest a really nice mature ram at the beginning of the season that nobody else has laid eyes on or you know if you're if you're first and you're there and uh yeah so i would say that's yeah i don't know I, that's a good question yeah for sure well, I think given the nature of, you know, your history at Riverjet, you had that opener was your opportunity to hunt, right? And that's, I, I would assume well, that yeah, made exactly. that decision, right? You drop your, yeah. you drop your two runs of guys off the milk run, and then you've got that 10 day window to get it done. So, you know, the yeah. rest of the time during the season, you were hauling elk hunters, right? So. Yeah, for sure. Um, we, would, we would sort of go around the other groups and make sure we never interfered with them. And, uh, and so, yeah, you're right. August, early August was my time. And um, I, I mean, it's it's a lot of bugs then in August. That's kind of the really sucks. But uh, that's true. Very true. September's really well, nice up there. And you're hearing the elk and, and whatnot. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so just a just a thing for the guys that are still dropping questions. What we'll do is um, we'll keep those questions. Um, we'll screenshot them and. Um, maybe we'll get Kevin to answer them on the platform afterwards. So I think we're, yeah. we're zeroing in on an hour and a half and there's a couple things. There's just one, one little segment left. I think we covered pretty much A to Z on sheep hunting and lots of good info and tips there. Um, but I'm dying to hear a couple stories. I, I definitely want to hear the rest of the story on the birthday ram for your buddy. Um, obviously yeah. you, you, yeah, I'll leave it up to you. You tell us that story, Kevin. And then, I would also like to hear your first Ram story. If you could share those two with us, that would be fantastic. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, the birthday Ram story, like I mentioned earlier, was um, up in the mountains, glassing sort of areas you would not ever look for stone sheep in and happened to find a, a group of small Rams there or a small group of Rams, a small group of big Rams. How's that? And, um, and I just watched them over the years. I knew that, you know, they weren't in areas that most guys would ever look. And um, so I, I actually watched them the first year. Then the second year I hiked in there and they were still there. And there was one tremendous ram in that group. And I took photos of him on, I uh, actually got quite close and took pictures of him. And it was neat just to have an area to, to grow those sheep. And um, I sent photos to my friend and and the way I work is um we you know we would alternate one year I would be first up one year he would be first up and that year he was first up and I took him into that spot on the third year 
And we ended up hiking in there and finding that sheep. And, um, you know, he made a, he's actually a really good shot, but, uh, oh man, he boffed it on that shot. He missed it completely. And, um, I have it all on video, which is even better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happens. And uh, I remind him about it quite often actually, but, uh, he, you know, he, the Rams kind of, he missed it on the first shot and this was the right at the opener. And the Rams went like 50 yards and all bunched up. And and he, he was asking me, like, Kev, what which Ram is it? And I'm like, it's the one with the big effing horns looking right at you. And that Ram was <laughs> right in the front and made a great shot on the next one, on the next shot, and uh and got that ram. And we walked up to that. I was actually so it was really special moment for me to have my buddy. You know, he he'd come up every year and kind of tap dance around my work and River Jet up there, and he mm-hmm. came up and it was really neat to be able to to bring him in and have him harvest such a big sheep, and um, yeah. So I mean, that was kind of the story with that ram. And, um, and what was the other one, Chuck? I forgot. Um, well, first I just you know I, a couple comments there. So that that ram was forty four inches, right? Yeah, that ram was 44 inches. He's got a, a beautiful life mount in his house. Yeah. Right on. And that was his 44th birthday, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, and he'd actually, when I when when I put the spotter up in those sheep, he I you know I said hey I said hey Scott come over and look at this and he looked at those rams and he's like oh nice using lambs over there and I'm like look closer and he actually got that one look and he just. I saw his face just change and it was, it was really cool to see that. And uh, so we were really focused after that on that one particular sheep. And there was three other really nice legal rams with that, but I just was happy to get, to get him that nice or he got, he put in the work too, to get that ram. It was. was Oh yeah. No doubt. Yeah. Well, just, just for your information, I'm 55. So, you know, I consider myself a friend, <laughs> friend and I'm 55. So I don't know yeah. if you got anything else in your pocket like that. Just let me know. We can take a photo uh, of the Ram in Fort Nelson at the museum there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. Uh, no, I just want to, we just want to hear the, the last segment here is let's talk about your very first cheap hunt. Just walk us through, you know, how that worked. You said you were solo, right? On that one. Like yeah, first successful I've, uh, round. I have yeah. a lot solo. Yeah, I've uh, taken quite a few sheep, different different kinds of the sheep solo, and my my stone sheep one was one of my proudest moments because I had gone into an area that, you know, you ask around like people have told me do not go into this area. There's no sheep in there. Um, they've been shot out, and I just wanted to go look and pound out the trails to see where all the trails went and what was in there and. And I'd gone in there and there was, there was a good number of rams in there. And um, so I ended up seeing that ram the morning. I actually saw all those rams out of my tent was, was the the morning I saw 52 rams and saw that beautiful sheep. And I'm sure there's bigger ones out there, but man, he looked pretty big to me at the time. And I, I went up there and, and, and got him. And that's when satellite phones were a thing. It was before we had the the texters and I I called my buddy, my sheep hunting partner couldn't come with me that time. And I was sitting on this ram in a, in a, in a uh, avalanche shoot with rocks coming down once in a while, little, little rocks. And 
and I phoned him from the sheep and I, I almost, I think I actually might've cried. Um, but, uh, I was pretty, pretty emotional. It was pretty special and phoned, phoned my buddy. And he was, he was working on the roof of a house, kneeling away and putting things together. And, and, uh, it was, it was such a cool feeling to be, he wasn't there, but he was there in spirit. So that was really neat. And, uh, and so I, I hiked that deboned that ram and I hiked it out and, and back then I didn't know, I didn't know as much about sheep back then. I knew it was a really nice ram, but it was just the biggest one that I saw. And when, when we were hiking or when I was hiking out, I had actually come to a grizzly bear on the trail hiking in and we had the, the total like standoff, the Mexican standoff on the trail and who's going to make the move first. And uh, we ended up doing the, the do si do like out of the movies where he went one way and I went the other and he could smell that, that meat in my pack. But uh, yeah, once I got around, uh, man, I've never hiked so fast in my life. I've, that pack was heavy, but I didn't feel a single pound. And I actually yeah, exactly. wore all the skin off my lower back there and uh, got that ram back and I ended up stopping at a camp on, on the way back. And they were like looking at this thing like, you don't even, do you know what you got here? I was like, yeah, it looks like a big ram to me. He's like, that is a tremendous sheep. And I actually have that ram. As, is one of my most special sheep. And it's it's life mounted out out in the other room there. And yeah, so I'm, I was really lucky. And, but it was a lot of hard work, man. Like, uh, it's luck, but I put on a lot of miles over the years. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, wow, that's cool. What a great story, Kev. Both of those stories are awesome. Um, well, thanks for sharing those. Uh, Blake, looks like we, we got time to probably rapid fire through a couple of questions. If we want to try and knock them out here, what do you think? Yep. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, okay. I'll just read off a couple to you, Kev. Uh, first one's from Luke. He sounds like he might be doing a pack raft trip this year. He's thinking about planning it. Any tips from your experience on how to reduce weight, knowing you got to plan for water travel and just your typical hiking gear? Um, well, you're, you're going to be adding weight with a pack raft. I've done it once. I don't think I'm going to do it again. Um, just be very, for reducing weight, you're not, there, there really isn't much way to reduce weight. We used it as a tool to sort of get out. Um, and, you know, we had, we had loaded packs with sheep. They were great when, and uh, we, you know, it, it was, it was a really great tool to get a lot of weight fast out of there um probably should have stopped before the big rapids and pulled out but we decided we went through the rapids and i would totally recommend to err on the side of caution i've I've been around rivers a lot and i i made a mistake there and should not have gone down the rapids and and uh so i would say be extra cautious around water take off your boots take off your rain gear um yeah so i mean so so for for weight that's that's a tough one like the the rafts now they're like six or six pounds with the paddle carbon fiber shaft paddle and um they're great i mean we 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 liked it but uh i don't i don't have one tip to sort of shave weight you're gonna if you're if you're going traveling with it we don't really have too many rivers in bc here that you can sort of go in with a raft and and sort of hunt right off your raft the whole way. 
so yeah nice uh okay let's jump to another question then so cole asked a couple of questions he was wondering uh what do you keep in your boat as fail safe items and then if you were to buy another boat what would you pick for sheep yeah um thanks cole for that question um i i'm a big jet boater and i carry a turfer a manual turfer, not not a, a, chain, a um, chainsaw winch or anything motorized. It's got to be manual with a bunch of cable. That's a fail-safe thing for me. I've used it a ton. I do bring a little power saw. Typically, I'm cutting out logs. Um, let me think here. I bring a, a push pole. Um, let's see here. Yeah. What so about I, uh, I spare here. parts for your Sorry, Chuck, go ahead. Sorry, just going to say, what about essential spare parts, breakdown parts for a boat? Yeah. Anything in particular well, you recommend? Sure. Like a lot of the guys run the little sport jet boats. Um, so you want to have um, spare fuel filters, a spare impeller, a spare impeller wrench. Um, and if, uh, let's see, I mean, there, there's not much. You want to be using your boat ahead of time under load. A lot of guys would say my boat ran great, but when I put it in the river with all this extra gas and went upstream and, and all the gear, you're running your motor. So you're working it so hard problems would arise. So you want to definitely iron those out ahead of time. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's just make sure you have all the safety gear, have your in reach, have a good plan, tell people where you are and don't rely, don't rely on other people to come rescue you. So I did a lot of rescues over the years and people, some people showed up with nothing knowing that if they had a problem, I would, I would be on the river to help them. And, and I always did, but I just, I do believe in being totally prepared. Yeah. For sure. And then uh, the question about uh, if you're buying another boat, what would that be? Wow. Um, you got a pretty nice little boat. The, the one you yep. have. Yeah, I mean, I run Riddle, Riddle Marine boats. Um, a lot of guys here in the province run the, the little firefish boats. Uh, they're, they're all, every manufacturer, it's like, it's like gear, boots, whatever, it, packs. They all make decent stuff. You, you know, if you're looking for a boat to do lots of backcountry remote sheep hunting trips, you want to have uh, um, more of a flatter bottom, like an eight degree bottom. A robust, uh, you know, build have lots of stringers in there. Um, you know, my boats are typically a little bit wider, so I can take quite a bit of gear in there. Um, yeah, and I, my, the boat I have now is a 15 foot center console boat. It's, um, you know, it's not the most comfortable boat. You're you're standing up all the time, but there's trade offs there. I can sort of slide over a gravel bar if I need to. I can jump a log if I need to. Um, you know, when I, when I get to the spot where I'm going, the boat gets winched right out of the river into the bush. Um, so I don't have to worry about it. A great big heavy VA boat to do. It's, it's a lot harder than that. And when you do hit with a big V8 boat, it's, um, you're typically going to leave, leave a mark. You're going to know it. And, um, the little sport jet boats seem to bounce, bounce off and they don't dent as bad. And yeah, so boats are quite, quite personal like gear and, like I said, I, I run the boat that, that worked for me for many years. Those uh, like a 15 foot 
center council vote. I wouldn't go any larger with a sport jet. Uh, definitely, I had an 18-footer with a sport jet, and that was that was too big for that motor, that power plant. So keep it 15, 16 feet, um, and make sure that you can pack the gas that you need. That's a big one. Yeah, that's probably the biggest one, right? What are you going to do without gas? <laughs> Pretty simple. Well, um, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah all the you're time, done. So. All right. Uh, any more questions? Yeah. Yeah. We got the last one here. This is uh, Marty. He was just asking uh, if you could scout one time prior to the hunt, how far out would you try to plan that trip? Oh, good question, Marty. Um, prior to the hunt, I would, so I would spend pretty much most of July hiking. So it's kind of, um, kind of uh, hard to answer that. But if I had to go, I would typically go early July. If you can stand the bugs, the water's usually high. You can get where you need to go, even with a bigger boat that you wouldn't normally be able to get to. And, um, and that's boating wise. But if you're if you're flying or, or driving, go go July, go July. It's those rams are on their summer range. They're, they're not going to go onto their winter range. They're not going to change too much. They're going to be in those areas. Um, and, and June can be problematic for, for weather. So, yeah, I would pick early July. Yeah, Marty. Right on. Good stuff. All right. We, we are encroaching on our two hours, which I knew this would happen. I figure with Kevin, we could do, we could do like six series just with you alone, buddy. So yeah, sorry. I, I, I try not, I try not to nerd out about anyone, anyone. Subject. No. So apologies hey, if look, I did guys. I had two pages of questions and I'm sure I could come up with three more. Um, oh, wait a second. Cole's got one last question right at the wire. In a sport jet, what amount of fuel do you budget per kilometer? I guess that uh, depends on that, a few things too, right? Yeah, that's a tough one, Cole. Um, I mean, <laughs> it depends. Like what, uh, how, depends on the depth of the river, on the speed of the water, the size of the boat. Um, the weight. Typically, like the most, the most common boat I would see up there is is like a, a 15, 16 footer, uh, like an outlaw boat or that style. Um, and, you know, if you bring enough, you got to kind of know where you're going and how far, and you should be doing all these calculations ahead of time. You don't want to find this out on the river and be flagging myself or, or not myself, but somebody else down. Like I know some of the rivers, there's, there's regular traffic. Some of the locals are on there all the time. Um, especially around Fort Nelson. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's really tough to, to say per, you know, per kilometer that, that you use. I do it. I know just from memory for, for the different areas and it makes a big difference if you're going up or downstream and whether you're mm -hmm. the early season water and we'll just use, you know, the Kachika river. As, as an example, is a popular one. Or the Muscle River, that's another popular one. Those early season hunts, that the, the water's really pushing and boiling in the deep pools, and you use a lot more fuel, like way more than you think with a sport jet platform, for sure. Yeah, they just don't have the, the grunt to, um, 
to keep you going in that boily, pushy water when you're climbing, especially in the rapids. Right on. Well, we are uh, we're in the last five minutes before the platform actually shuts us down. So we we've well, gone right I'm to the wire. I'm happy wires. to keep going until you guys cut me off. That's fine. <laughs> Well, I think what we're going to do, you know, we're going to we're going to definitely ask you to come back on, uh, you know, Blake and I just love to to chat with you and visit and pick your brain as much as we possibly can. But uh, I think we're going to. Uh, OK, last question. What is the Ram score behind you? This is from Caden Romaine. Did you score hey, that one? I, I might I might know you, Caden. Uh, yeah, you do. I know you do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, that Ram there is. Um, I've actually never had that uh, that ram officially scored. Um, that that ram was the, my dream ram, and um, I never actually had it officially scored. I laid a, a tape on it green, and uh, put it in the freezer, which I found out after you shouldn't do. But um, it did shrink quite a bit. But um, when I taped him the other day, he was uh, let's just say he's over one seventy five. Nice. Wow, that's awesome! And there's yeah. one last dart that came from uh, one of your buddies, who I know as well. Uh, Mr. Hank has a uh, comment from our your buddy, Mr. Pollock, and he says your pack is so light because he carries all your shit. <laughs> he carries <laughs> he all knew somebody stuff. out there. Yeah, he also carries my rock collection up the mountain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, he Kevin. Well. Thank you. Uh, thanks again for taking the time. Yeah. You've been uh, you've been a huge supporter of not just Blake and I, but the platform, and uh, a great friend to uh, all so many sheep hunters and mountain hunters for that for that matter. And uh, I think the whole community uh, it was excited to see you on here tonight. And if you're so gracious, we'd like to get you back on again at some point. Yeah, thank you guys. Um, love to come back and talk and. Um, hopefully there's a, a little tidbit of info there for, for your audience. And uh, really, like I said before, I, I actually feel just super, super blessed and honored to be, um, to be invited on here. So thank you, uh, Chuck and Blake. It's, that's fantastic. And yeah, you know, uh, we'll have to go for a beer for sure. Talk to you you got it, buddy. Definitely. All right. Yeah. Thanks again, Thanks, Kev. Kev. We're going to, we're going to wrap it up. All right, everybody. Uh, yep. We got segment number three tomorrow night. We got uh, Kyle Stelter and the Wild Sheep crew are going to be on for uh, a roundtable. We're going to give them the keys to Spike Camp, so we'll see how that goes. So join us there, and then uh, watch for the uh, part two, July 11, 12, and 13. So keep your eye on our socials and on the platform. Thanks a lot, everybody. Have a good night. Thank you.